So thank you so much for joining us on Let the Healer Medium Podcast. I'm your host, Asia. And today we have Martin Salama joining us. How are you doing, Martin? I'm great, Asia. How are you? I cannot complain. Fantastic. <laughs> so um, whereabouts are you from? I am in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, born and raised there? Born and raised, was out in New Jersey for about 20 years, but I'm back here now. Okay. How you like it? I love it. It's a great, okay. great town. I say yeah. that everything starts in Brooklyn. <laughs> so do you have family, a lot of family there? I do. I do. I come from a very close-knit community, uh, Jewish community, Orthodox, modern Orthodox, and very few of us move away. Okay. We marry within the community. We stay close by. And we have a very close-knit family. Okay. Well, let's go back to your childhood. Would you tell me what that was like for you? Well, sure. Um, for me, I actually, uh, I can, being that I've gone through so much in my life, uh, there's something that happened to me when I was 10 years old that kind of shaped me for the next 40 years. You see this picture over here to the where, where I'm pointing to? See this little boy here? I do. So that's my, my brother, Michael. Okay. And uh, right after that, a few months after that picture was taken, unfortunately, he met with a, with a tragic accident. He had gotten off the school bus, and as he was walking in front of the school bus, he dropped something, and the bus driver didn't see him and drove. And unfortunately, four days later, he passed away from his injuries. Oh, my goodness. And you said he was how old? He was uh, just almost five years old. He was about a few weeks shy of his fifth birthday. Oh my goodness. Now, you said that was your younger brother? Yeah. And how old were you at this time? I was 10 and I have four older sisters. Okay, and how was how old was the oldest? At the time she was um she was 20. Okay. Did you have both parents in the household? I did. Okay. How did your parents um deal with that? Uh, it was it was a very tough time for all of us. Uh my mother for a, for a while after that shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, she was very difficult for her to, to get through every day. She lost her baby. Uh, and it was a tough time for all of us. And as I said, we come from a small community. So it touched our whole community. Uh, and, uh, it, and a few months later, someone from the community reached out to her and said, you know, there were a couple of other mothers who recently lost children. We'd like to put together a group for you so that you have each other. And my mother grasped onto this. And over the next, I'd say 30 or 40 years, she and these other women became leaders in our community, reaching out to other mothers who would lose children and tell them something that only they can say to them. I know how you feel. And, and in the Jewish religion, the first week after someone dies, there's a week of condolences where people come to visit. And my mother would go during those weeks and tell these women during that first week and say, I know how you feel. We have a group when you're ready to help you move forward. Not forget, not give up, but to accept and learn how to live the rest of your life. And many years, many times over the years, women have come to me and said, your mother saved my life. Wow, I can only imagine. Is your mother still alive? She is, she's 91. Wow. Um, unfortunately, COVID wasn't very good to her in terms of her being stuck at home. Mm -hmm. She, before COVID, was driving, playing bridge two, three times a week, was pretty active. But being at home and being confined really, you know, played on her, really, I think, accelerated uh, her Alzheimer's and dementia. Because now she, I mean, she remembers me, she's had some good days and bad days, but she's nowhere who she was before COVID started. Yeah. Did she ever contract it? Uh, she did, but um, I don't think that that uh, contributed to her, what was going on for her. Okay. We were lucky that when she contracted it, we found out right away and was able to give her what they called at the time the drip. Mm -hmm. You know, I forgot the name for it now, but, yeah. you know, she got the, 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 the uh, IV like within 24 hours of us finding out. Okay. Um, so let's go back to that event. Yeah. Um, how did your father deal with it? So my father was from the old school. You know, he never really showed his emotion out outwardly. 
Um, and it wasn't until, you know, he would do things quietly, like donate money in, in memory of my brother or different things like that to, you know, uh, perpetuate his his memory in his, his own way. He's from the old school, never showed his real emotions to us. Wow. Did that have an effect on you? Um... It did. It did. Because when that happened, when I was 10 years old, I remember when my brother was born. I was so excited because I now had a brother. I yeah. now thought that he and I were going to conquer the world together. We were going to be partners in crime, you know, and go yeah. out there and conquer the world together. And when that happened, uh, I told myself a story that now I have to carry on the legacy of the name. I have to be the one to make sure that things move forward. I'm the one that has to make sure that my parents never feel sadness like that again. This is a 10 year old. Wow. And I think at that moment, I could look back now and realize I changed my life at that moment. And I became a people pleaser because I wanted to make sure I was always going to make my parents happy. Now, let me ask you this. Um, and with you taking on, because that's a lot of responsibility, like for a child, you know, of that age, even someone under the age of 21, 25, you know, I mean, no one is ever prepared for, you know, a tragic event like that or death at all. Um, do you feel like you were robbed of your childhood having to take on that role? I don't think so. I don't think so. It, because it wasn't something that was overt. It wasn't something that I just, you know, went out there and told the world I'm going to take care of my parents. It was something deep within me. And, you know, if I was thinking about doing things that were out of the norm, my parents say, oh, no, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to go into business. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Uh, and I would say, okay, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm making them happy. So it was never anything like that. It never fully affected my childhood. Other than for the most part, I don't have too many memories before I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And I think it could have been that I just shut those memories out, good and bad, for the most part. And kind of like my life began at 10. And, you know, I can definitely relate to that because I don't re remember a whole lot of my, like, younger years either. And I think it may be like a... Um, like the body's reaction to like trauma or you know like a um, defense mechanism that's exactly a defense mechanism yeah the shutdown yeah. To, to somewhat like go into protection mode so, so that you're not experiencing that again you know right um so how how did your siblings deal with that you know it's interesting uh this was the 70s and believe it or not i i'm 60 years old i know i don't look it but yeah i'm 60 uh and back in the 70s, you know, it wasn't really the, you know, the ideas of therapy and, and trauma to children and so on and so forth was not was not thought of in the way it is today. And uh, for about 20 years, we never talked about it. And about tw almost about 20 years after my brother's death, my sisters and I got together and talked about what had happened and how it had affected each one of us up until that point and we each had a different um version of the story of what happened to him so we kind of like pieced it together based on what we had done what what had happened we never talked about it before that wow do you feel like that was traumatizing not really like letting that out looking back now i can say maybe but at the time it was the norm of the world yeah. You know, we like I said, we have a week of where we in the Jewish religion, we sit on low chairs or on the floor and people come for a week to comfort us and console us and, and give us condolences. So we had that going on during the week. And then, you know, then we continue from there. And I can remember, you know, Friday nights in the Jewish religion is a big night. We have a big dinner. We have families. And I can remember the times those first few months afterwards, my mother not being able to sit at the Friday night dinner table, needing to go upstairs and just cry herself to sleep. But as a traumatized way, I, I, not directly. But okay. it took me 40 years to understand the effects that it had on me and me becoming a people pleaser as a result of that. And I can only imagine. So like in that, first of all, who sparked that initial meeting for you guys to 
or did it just kind of happen naturally? I know one of my sisters reached out and said, you know, let's sit down. It's 20 years. It's, uh, let's talk about Michael. His name yeah. is Michael. And let's, let's talk about where our lives have gone as a result. You know, a couple of my sisters gone had gone through college by then. You know, we'd all gone through college by then. It was 20 years later. But one of them was a therapist or, or a social worker. And I think that she just felt like, you know, that those were doors that were never really opened or closed. Yeah. Now tell me about that day when you guys met. Was that super emotional for you guys? Did oh, you guys yeah. feel a yeah, sense yeah. of relief? Yeah. It's And, and now... It's over 30 years ago that we had that conversation because this past March, it was 50 years that I lost my brother. Wow. And uh, But it was an emotional day. And I remember us talking about how my mother didn't want to be part of that conversation. She didn't want to talk to us about it. She spoke with others about it, but she... And I, and I don't hold ill feelings to my mother towards that at all. That was the way she needed to deal with it. And you know what? That's really good. Like, I, I commend you for that, for like not taking offense to the fact that she didn't want to discuss something like that with her children, you know, because she may feel like that's just too sensitive of a subject or maybe she's still very hurt behind that, you know, but whatever the case may be, the fact that you respect and honor her yeah, and, and you know, like respecting her privacy mm. and silence on that, you know? Right, right. I remember about 20 or 25 years ago, I was in the car with my mom one day and there was an ambulance driving by. And she turned to me, she says, do you ever remember Michael? And I said, yeah, pretty much every day. And she said, yeah, me too. And that was just the end of the conversation that day. But I had something that happened for me years later that was a beautiful thing. Uh, I had moved to New Jersey for about 20 years of my life. And while I was there, I was the founder of the first synagogue in Eatontown, New Jersey. And about a year after we started the synagogue, we decided, okay, now it's time to start building a building. We were, we had, before that, we were going from house to house every month, we'd be in somebody else's house, have the services there. And I went to my dad and I said, you know, you know, dad, this is what we're doing. We're building a synagogue. We've been very uh, happy with where we're going and we look to move forward. And again, my father was never one to really tell his emotions. And he turned to me and he said, you know what? I'll give you $50,000 towards the building of it if you name the synagogue after your brother. Wow. That's so amazing. it's called in Hebrew, Sharei Tefillah B'nai Moshe, which in English is the gates of prayer for the children of Moses. My brother's Hebrew name was Moses Moshe. Wow. Yeah. That's so amazing. So that spoke volumes to me. You know, recognizing my brother, as well as recognizing what I was doing and being proud of me. That's his way, was his way of telling me I'm proud of you. He's gone for about 22 years now, my dad. Oh, wow, I'm sorry. Yeah. And you know what, it's something the way that God works, right? Because not all the, like, not all the time us as humans understand like the trajectory of God and the way that he does his, his stuff, right? Right, <laughs> But <Exactly>. it all, <laughs> it all works together, you know, for the good, like, you know, you guys were blessed to have your brother for five years, you know, as some people that don't even get five years with their children. Right. Um, and so you do have those memories, like you do have some memories. And then that, you know, shifted your mother into like working with people, you know, that right. my dad too did things, you know, and yeah. community minded. And, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned that it was 50 years ago. So when it was the 50th anniversary, we have a tradition in our community to to donate a class, a, 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 a Torah class, a Bible class in memory of someone or in honor of someone. So in the synagogue that I go to, when you do that, the rabbi says, you need to get up and talk about the person who, um, who it was, you know, who you're donating the class after. So I knew this was coming and I, I prepared something. And it was interesting because a few weeks before that, I had mentioned to my sister that it was going to be 50 years and she says, some, oh, my wife actually said to me, you know, I wonder what he would look like. So I mentioned that to my sister and she says, oh yeah, he looked like daddy. He probably would still look even more like daddy. She goes, I wonder, you know, what he would be like now. So I thought about that and I put together uh, my introduction to the class about my brother. And I said, 
You know, it was very easy. Many times in my life, I could look back and say, what if, right? But instead of saying, what if, I look at a five-year-old boy and I say, what kind of impact could a five-year-old boy have on the world? And I was very proud to say, this is some of the things that the impact of a five-year-old child. For example, I have a cousin of mine who's one of the leading pediatric neurologists on the East Coast, who a few years, about 20, 25 years ago, told me, I'd already decided I was going to go into medicine when your brother's accident happened. But because of what happened to your brother, I became a neurologist because of that. Um, which is really unbelievable. And I told you the story about my dad and I told you about my mom and my sister, one of my sisters uh, over the years has become, first she started out becoming, when my father was ill and her father-in-law was ill, she would be the person that would ask the doctors all the questions. So she became a patient advocate. Mm. And then she turned around and started doing it for people in the community. And she put together a list of doctors who knew her name, who knew who she was. If somebody needed a doctor, they'd call my sister and she'd say, oh, go to this doctor. He takes this insurance. He does this. Tell him I sent you. And they would get appointments. Over the last seven or eight years, she's now turned her, her work into a cancer center here in New York. And all that started as a result of what happened then. And there's other stories like that about people, now like myself, starting a synagogue. All of those I can attribute to the impact that my brother had. So whatever I do, my legacy, I consider it as my brother's legacy as well. You know what? That is so powerful. That is so powerful. Let me ask you this. If, say, let's say we have a listener that, you know, is questioning why some things may have happened to them in their life. And they just can't like, you know, because sometimes like God doesn't reveal. Well, God never reveals the whole picture at once. Right, um, right, right. But what would you say to someone that's been impacted by like a great loss or a major yeah. event in their life and they need help seeing the brighter side of things or just, you know, being optimistic or hopeful? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about me. So for, for that first 40 years, when someone would say the name Michael to me and very often people would call me Michael because my name is Martin. Martin and Michael, they're both M's, whether they knew my story or not. And to me, I would shudder. I was like, oh my God, you know, and I would start to break down inside. But after I had gone through some major life turmoils, ups and downs, especially in 2008, when the financial world fell apart, I lost everything. And that's when I decided a year later that I wanted to do something different in my life. And I decided to become a coach, a life coach. Uh, and I went through some ups and downs even after that. But one of the things I realized was I need to reframe what happens there. So as a result of going through life coach training and allowing myself to recognize those things that were holding me back, that I was a people pleaser and that where it came from. And it, was, it took work, you know, it started with therapy and then really continued much stronger through coaching. I started to recognize the things that were holding me back, the people pleaser. And with that came control freak and always having to be right and always, you know, needing the recognition and changed all those things and changed my mindset from self-conscious to what I now call myself more self-aware, right? And now when someone says the name Michael to me, I look at it as God's way or even Michael's way is telling me he's with me. And he's yeah. watching over me. Yeah, as like an encouragement tool, you know. Um, so let me ask you this. What was the event or what was it that I know you mentioned you went to therapy. What was it that made you like start therapy? Like what was it the, uh, an event or are you just like, I yeah. need some So I had been in it a couple of times in my life, had gone to some therapy for different reasons. But in 2008, my wife and I were working on a project for five years to build a multi-million dollar health club and tennis center in New Jersey. And it took us five years because we needed to make the decision and that's what we wanted to do. Do a feasibility study that it made sense to do that. Then find the land, then get the architects and the engineers involved, then go to the city and get their approvals and them telling us, oh, you need to do civil engineers as well and all that. And all this takes time and money. 
So over those two, five years, I was investing money. I was investing time. And if it happened in 2006 or 2007, the banks were lending money, kind of like if you went to Costco and got samples from the ladies <laughs> on the end. <laughs> right? Yeah. They were, they were giving it away. They were giving the loans away. You know, yeah. all these people could go back and refinance their home six months after they just refinanced. That's, wow. how, that's how flowing the money was. But in my case, it happened to be that it took me five years. It was 2008. So I go to the bank and I'm like, okay, we finally got all the approvals. And they're like, yeah, no, we're not lending anymore. I'm like, what are you talking wow. about? Last year you said, come back, we'll give you everything you need. Well, things have changed. A month later, September 2008, Bernie Madoff, the subprime loans, the financial world falls apart. And I'm on the bottom of the heap. Three plus million dollars out between my money the money I borrowed and the investor's money was gone. And I went into a major depression yeah. and I needed to go to therapy. Yeah. And it took me about a year to get out of that depression between therapy and coaching. I started getting a little coached as well. And I started to recognize, okay, all these years I've been doing things because that was the social norm to go get a job, be a, be a business owner, do what everybody thinks you should do. And I said, you know what? I got to reinvent myself anyway. I don't have any money. I don't have any resources <laughs> for money. Why don't I just do something different? And I realized the thing I loved doing was helping people because I was always involved in community events. And that came from my parents' teaching, always showing you got to give back to the community. And as I told you, I was the leader. I was the president of the synagogue for 15 years. I was the founder, the president. They used to call it the Martin Salama Shul in the beginning. When, oh, there's that synagogue. Over there. That's Martin Shul. You know, and it was a beautiful thing. And I loved the recognition back then. Yeah. I was like, you know what? And when I was a leader, one of the things that I was always doing was people would come in and say, well, I don't know how much I can do. I'm like, let me show you what you, I, you can't. I, I can't do what you're doing. I said, I don't want you to do what I'm doing. Just, just do a little bit. I realized I was a coach. I was showing them their potential. So that's what made me decide to become a coach. So now here I am, I go start doing the research. I'm like, great, I found a great coaching school. And about two months before it was time to go, it was my 24th wedding anniversary. And my wife gave me a very interesting gift. She asked for a divorce. Oh my goodness. Yep. Oh no. And why do I put it as a gift? Because looking back now, other than our full children, four children, it was a gift. Mm -hmm. I needed to kick in the pants. I needed to recognize what I was not doing right in my life. And you know what? I'll tell you truthfully. I wasn't the best husband. She wasn't the best wife. But I was it why wasn't the full it wasn't all my fault and it wasn't all her fault. We were both victims and culprits to the to the destruction of the marriage. But I could only take responsibility for my side of it. Mm -hmm. right? And it took me a while to recognize that and go through the coaching. And I said, I'm still going to do it. I think God was giving me a hint and saying, oh, you want to be a life coach? Well, maybe you need to start with yourself first. Yeah. And that's where I started to learn all those things. So that main thing there of 2008 and everything that happened afterwards, because the first thing I said to myself when she asked for the divorce is, why does everything keep happening to me? And you know what that is? That's me blaming everybody else for what's going on. And you know what? And that's when we need to really take, that's at that point in time, like we really need to take a step back. And you know what? I can, I can say I'm a witness to that, like within myself, because when I plummeted and hit rock bottom, I'm like, why is everything terrible happening? No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try. And like over the course of the next year, God was showing me different areas that I need to work on. Right. Forgiveness being the very first one, forgiveness. Oh yeah, that's a strong word and strong meaning behind it. It's not about forgiving the others. It's about giving the forgiveness to others so that you can release yourself from the resentment. So you can be free from the bondage of that's the, right. whatever that is that's holding, because that's what it is. You know, when we are unforgiven towards others and when we're mad or carrying this grudge around, we are enslaved in bondage. That's right. You know? We are. We are. So let me ask you this. Like, how did you um, 
How did you find the coach that you were working with? Was it the there? Did your therapist like refer you, or did you go doing research and looking for someone? So that's an interesting question. I never thought about that so much. Um, I remember uh, a few years before that, I had had a business coach in a business I was working in at the time, working on at the time, and I understood the importance of coaches. So I always kept my my hand out there, my eyes out looking for coaches. So I knew that the next progression for me after I had gone through therapy was to help somebody find somebody who could help me in the next level. Because and one of the things I learned in coach training is therapy and coaching, as similar as people think they are, they're also different. Therapy takes people from dysfunctional to functional. Coaching takes people from functional to optimal. Mm. Right? To find their potential. So I had gotten out of that dysfunctional thing of recognizing that I was depressed because what had gone on. And I needed to now move myself forward because going to the to the therapist, as good as it was, it had met its end. And it was time for me to move forward from there. Yeah. So I searched out, I think. And then I realized, okay, let me go find a coach. Let me go yeah. become a coach. Yeah. But you know what? That's good that you recognize that it was time to like shift into something else versus just staying there and not like, and just being comfortable or not like growing even more, you know? Right. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. And and it's about me saying I've got to step out of my pity party now that I recognize that that's what it is. And look, therapy is not about pity parties. It's about moving yourself and allowing yourself to heal. It has its very important place. But therapy coaching takes you from the healing to continue to heal and to grow and to understand that what happened in the past happened. And it's okay to reflect on the past, but not to live in the past. Oh, that's good. It's definitely like, and you know what? That's one thing that like my mom used to tell me, she would say, um, you know, life happens and sometimes like things hurt, you know, and like not to take that or minimize um, anything that anybody goes through or is going through or has gone through, but we cannot stay in that broken place. Like you have to pick yourself up or life will just pass you by, you That's know, it. That's you have it. to, you have to, some days you will cry. Some days you will be sad. Some days. Yeah, you know, and it's okay for those things to happen. Listen, I got a call from someone today who went to a funeral and was very sad about it, even though they were not connected closely. He was friends with the son and felt like he needed to be, and he started crying. And I said, it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel these feelings. No, we haven't, I haven't had a good relationship with you. There were some bad times I said, okay, but we've had a good relationship over the last couple of years. So let's not dwell on the years before that. Let's build on what's happened the last couple of years. And I think he appreciated that. Yeah. And I gave him his space, his space to cry as well. Yeah. Not a lot of people are, are used to having that safe space where they can express themselves. A lot of people feel like, oh, if I cry or show show this um, sadness or, you know, anything other than what society says that I need to be, then I'll, I'll be weak or it's I'll be weakness, this or right. I'll be that. Yeah. No, and it's not that. It's not that at all. And thank you for someone like Brene Brown, who's brought the word vulnerability out of the closet. Right. Especially for men. It's OK to be vulnerable. That doesn't mean drop your crap all over somebody. That yeah. means find people who you can trust that you can talk to when you are moments of weakness, when you are moments of vulnerability to say, you know what? I need help. Men have a problem recognizing and admitting they need help. Women, too, but more men, I think, yeah. where they're afraid to show their emotions because they'll be looked at as weak as a result of that. And you know what? That's so true. And then like, not to mention this generational curse of, um, you know, the, the, the lie of saying, Oh, men shouldn't cry. You should act like this. Like who makes these rules? You know, we are free. God, society, free, right. God gives us free will and God doesn't, he doesn't get upset when we cry or when we're sad or when we're angry or whatever right. we feel, you know, he gives us that space because we're human and he That's understands right. that, That's you right. know, and like you said, oh, this is a good one. So like you said, um, you know, society sets all these boundaries and, and, you know, paints this picture of who they expect us to be or who it expects mm -hmm. us to be. 
what would you say to someone that's listening that um like how would you tell someone to get outside of society's norms and that it's okay to do that well i i think a lot of it has to again i can relate to myself so here i am somebody going through coaching and starting to understand that i'm a people pleaser now part of that is me accepting that that's who i was admitting to myself that i've been a people pleaser and that it's held me back so i first set up a boundary for myself which was i'm going to take care of myself first as long as it's not hurting somebody else right that's how i started out very basic meaning i'm going to make decisions that are good for me as long as it's not taking away from somebody else in any and for a people pleaser that's how it has to start small baby steps because the first thing a people pleaser thinks of oh if i do this i'm going to get that person mad at me or this person is going to be hurt or whatever so it was about me understanding those boundaries and recognizing that just because i said no the end of the world is not going to happen for that person because that's what as a people pleaser i'm automatically thinking oh my god i just let them down the world is going to end right yeah <laughs> so that's how i started with small steps like that and now i talked about earlier i went from how how why does everything happen to me now instead i say everything happens through me oh right the difference is happening to me is it's somebody else's problem i blame somebody else happening through me i'm taking responsibility for the actions that happen you know what that's that's heavy i like that that's deep i like that I like you didn't know you're we gonna get that deep over here huh <laughs> no but i like it i really yeah. like that um so how did you uh i know you said you went to coaching school uh-huh what did you do just like do some research on what coaching programs i did i did and you know the advent of the in of, uh, of the internet made it easy for me you know uh i i started researching coaching schools and i looked for ones that were were giving me the things that i was looking for and i came down to a couple of schools and then i realized the one that was at the top of the list was located 20 minutes away from me their headquarters were located not even 20 minutes 10 minutes away by car from me so i went into their office and i said listen here's where i am I want to take your I'm very seriously considering taking your your course your your training but I'm having financial difficulties and I know that you said we could figure out financing I know everything I've gone through the last few years that I'll never get financed but just my scores were bad I owed money all over the place I said but if you believe in me and let set up a payment plan I promise to pay you every month what we talk about and they said okay but here's the deal you don't get your certification until you're fully paid off. I said, "Okay. You got a deal." And we made a deal and I started paying off. And that first weekend was and I, again, I'm I'm Orthodox Jewish. I ride a bike on Saturday. Some don't. I do. The weekend is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it was the summertime and I was still living in my house. I was just in the process of getting divorced. I hadn't moved out yet. And I rode my bicycle for 25 minutes to go on Saturday. Friday I drove, Saturday I rode. I sat in the room. I didn't write notes because I don't use electronics. I don't use a pen and paper, but I learned. And then Sunday I went back by car and all that. And then a few months later we had it again and I stayed in a hotel nearby because by then I had moved out of the house in my divorce proceedings, boss started to move out. And I stayed in a hotel and I did what I needed to do. And then a few months later again, same thing. and i was committed and they were committed to me and that first weekend was about me hearing them say you don't have to be who you think you have to be you can be whoever you want to be as long as you recognize who you've been so far and where you want to go and if you don't know where you want to go that's where coaching comes in we'll ask the questions to help you figure it out and that first weekend after we finished they gave me a peer coach and i was peer coaching somebody else So I got right into it. Wow. That's amazing. And you know what, oftentimes like when you were just saying like we don't have to be who we 
who would think we're supposed to be. That's exactly how it is with God. Like we all oftentimes come to him as his made up version or try to come to him as his made up version of who he, who we think he wants us to be. And actually it's just like, no, just be exactly who you are. Yeah. And you know, just have an open and willing heart. And then I've got the rest. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing. So let me ask you this. Like when you started the coaching, did it feel really natural? Like that's what you were meant to be doing? Yes, because I had already had the training of coaching people through the that first part. So for me, it was just understanding the skills better and now taking them in and, and using them in the right way. And for me, after I finished coaching, I was like, okay, what kind of coach do I want to be? What area do I want to focus on? And it was interesting because I was on a call on how to market yourself on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And the woman said, go onto your Facebook and make sure you have nothing bad, no curses, no stupid memes or anything like that. Make sure your all your information is up to date. And I looked at it and it still said I was married. So I switched it to divorced. And within 24 hours, I got a message from a woman in my community saying, now that you're divorced, are you ready to start dating? <laughs> like what so i we set up a time to talk i'm like kelly i know you forever you're married she goes no no I, i'm not asking if you want to go out on a date with me she goes i'm your matchmaker i'm like matchmaker what is wow. this fiddler on the roof <laughs> you know? so she goes no in our community we have a, a a group that helps people find a match no wow. matter what age you are if that's something you're looking for i said well i don't know if i'm ready she said, well, let's talk. We spoke for about an hour. And she goes, I got to tell you, I never met a man so well put together after his divorce like you. <laughs> and I said, I think it was the coaching. So she goes, well, maybe you should go into divorce coaching. Wow. So I started off as a divorce recovery coach. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, who better? Because I recognized it was the coaching that got me through the divorce. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know... I didn't physically kick and scream about yeah. getting divorced, but I was emotionally kicking and screaming about getting divorced. Yeah. Wow. When it first happened. I was like, I don't want this to happen. I got to figure out that to make it happen. And it was really, now I could look back and recognize that was happening because I didn't like myself. And I was afraid nobody else would like me. Or worse, or even more, they wouldn't love me. Right? So why bother to find somebody else when I already had somebody to love me? Let me figure out how to get to love me back. Love again. But going through coaching and reinventing myself and learning about myself, I learned about values. And I realized that my values and hers were never aligned. And we had many good years, but we were also very codependent. Mm. And that was a recipe for disaster, which it was for 25 years. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's deep. <clears throat> yeah. So let me well, ask you. Uh, I'm sorry, what'd you say? No, no, nothing. Go ahead. Okay. So once you got off into divorce coaching, like how long did you I know you said you started off, so that means that you shifted into something else. How long did you do that before before you shifted? So I did divorce coaching for about three or four years, give or take. And while I was doing that, I realized I wasn't allowing myself to be coached because I wasn't full-time coaching. I had found a job, which was really a dead-end job, paying me very little. And I allowed myself, and I allowed my I can'ts to take over. I can't afford a coach. And even though I understood that those words shouldn't be coming into play, I was doing them anyway. I was back into that self-conscious mode. So one day... I looked in the mirror and I was the heaviest I ever was in my life. And a friend of mine was on Facebook talking about how he lost a ton of weight by doing a video 30 minutes a day. Really? Oh, I don't have to buy a gym membership. I could do it from home. I could wake up a little earlier and do it. And this guy said, I'll coach you. He said, I'll do it for free. Just sign up and get the video. And it was Sean T. Uh, T25, Focus T25 beach body videos i'm gonna write this down <laughs> <laughs> and i started doing those videos and i gotta tell you the first two weeks i couldn't make it through a whole video i was doubled over i was 
I was breathing heavy and he tells me, Martin, take a picture of yourself in shorts only. I'm like, no way. He goes, no, I'm telling you, take a picture of yourself. <laughs> I was the heaviest I ever was in my life. Well, nine months later, I lost 65 pounds. Wow. But you know what also happened? I started to feel better. I started to like myself more. I started to allow myself to be coached. I realize now that I can't afford not to be coached. I have to be coached at all times because there's always something I need to do better. And I did coaching for a few, you know, for, I was a uh, divorce coach for a few years. And these things started to happen to me that I liked myself, loved myself, started dating. And when I was dating, I would go out on these dates and ask these women questions about their lives. And really what I was doing was finding out what their values were. Mm. See if we were aligned. And one day my friend Kelly calls me up and she says, Martin, I got to tell you, you got to take out this woman. I'm like, well, tell me about it. She starts telling me all about it. I go, I don't know her. She goes, you know, Ralph and Cookie. I was like, yeah, sure. I know Ralph and Cookie. Ralph's friends with my sister. Cookie's friends with another sister of mine. Well, it's their daughter. I'm like, their daughter? How old is she? <laughs> oh, she's 15 years younger than you. I'm like, well, if she wants to go out with me, great. We go out on the date and she's checking off all the boxes. And we go out again. She's checking off all the boxes. All the values are aligning. About a month into it, I tell her, I have to tell you something, Sarita. I'm falling in love with you because I see you exactly as you are. And you're not trying to change me. You see me as I am. And two weeks later, she said she loved me too. And I'm very happy to say we're married for five and a half years. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. But what That's also happened at that time is I realized that I loved my life. This was back in 2014, 2015, and that I loved what I was doing. And one day I was doing something that I'm not very good at. I'll tell you straight out. Because <laughs> of ADHD, I was meditating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine an ADHD guy meditating? <laughs> When's this going to be over? I can't. My mind's all over the place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but one of these days, I had this download of information that I loved my life. And I wanted to coach other people on how they could love their life too. And after after 10 minutes of of coach of meditation, I wrote for two hours. And out of that came the word life, live incredibly full every day. And to me, that means having a happy life and having a meaningful life. Happiness is self-love, self-care, even selfish, which is good sometimes. People always want to say that selfish is a bad word. It could be good especially to the people pleasers out there. It's okay to be selfish. Meaningful is the other side. It's selfless, giving out, giving to others, doing for others. That's live incredibly full every day. That's life. That's amazing. That's amazing. And you know what? You find so much joy, like when you are like appreciating yourself and showing yourself grace and just like getting to know yourself all over again, especially like the heel version of yourself. So let me ask you this, like at what point did you realize that you are a people pleaser? So I would say it was within a few months of going to coach training and, and being coached and learning about myself and allowing myself to recognize the things that weren't working. And like I said, it's baby steps. The first baby step was recognizing that that's who I was. That if my wife asked me to do something, I would say no 20 times. And she knew on the 21st time, she'd get me to say yes. It, it was always a different number. It was never exactly 20. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So, that eventually she could get me to say yes. And I'm not blaming her for that. I take responsibility for that. Because I could have been strong enough to say no and live with those convictions that I made. But the inside of me was afraid that she wouldn't love me if I said no. You know, and that had to do with my lack of self-care and self-love. Yeah. And I self-esteem and all that. I needed to rebuild that. And it started while I was going through coaching and getting divorced at the same time. And she would call me up and say, can you do this? And can you do that? And whatever. And parts of me was still like, I hope I can get her to still love me. That was, a, and I started realizing that's not going to happen. 
And I recognized that that's who I was. And I was trying to get say yes to get her to say yes back to me. But that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a tough time. But and I tell people it's not a magic pill you can take and wake up tomorrow and be free of that. It takes work and it takes admitting that you need to change. Absolutely. So <clears throat> just a few more questions. So let's say we have somebody on here listening <laughs> and they feel they feel as though or they may know that they're a people pleaser, but they're so anxious when it comes to hurting someone else's feelings. You know, they just want to be validated by someone else. Right. What would you say to that person? Well, first thing I would say is this is where coaching really comes to play. Right. Because I believe a coach is someone that you could talk to who has no agenda, who has no emotional ties to what you're talking about, who's there to support you, be objective, but also tell you when you're wrong. Not in a judgmental way, but to say, let's see if we can come up with a better way of saying that. Let's reframe it. And the best part about being a, a coach, for someone to have a coach, is they become your accountability partner, right? It's very easy to be accountable to your family, to your boss, to the, everybody around you, because you have to answer at the end of the day. But when it comes to answering to yourself, it's very easy for you to say and to, for you to rationalize that it's okay, I was doing this and I was doing that. And that's big for, a, for someone who's a people pleaser, to rationalize everything. And I've taken the word rationalize and I've trademarked it into two words. I've taken it from rationalize to rational lies. <laughs> that is smart. That's genius. <laughs> it's rational to do things that you know you shouldn't be doing. So you lie to yourself that it's okay to do those things. I'll give you an easy example, Asia. You wake up in the morning, you know, I don't feel like exercising today. I'm tired. Now, are you really tired or are you rationalizing that you just don't want to? Because you know what? Nine times out of 10, you start exercising and about 10 minutes in, you're like, I'm so glad I did this. Mm -hmm. It's the endorphins kicking in and saying, but if you don't do it, you're like, okay, so I didn't exercise today. Who am I hurting? You're hurting yourself because mm -hmm. you're rationalizing that it's okay not to do it. Absolutely. So what, what, what type of coaching do you do now? So now I help people shift their mindset from lack to abundance, from the I can't, that scarcity mindset, to I can and opportunities are all around me. Or on a deeper level, from self-conscious to self-aware. Most people think they're aware and self-aware until they talk to me. And I can even bring out my cards which is my which is my course in little card deck and there's a card in there that talks about the difference between self-aware and self-conscious wow so did you create that card deck i did it's all mine and it's uh all my stuff and if you'd like i could even pull out that one card about self-aware and self-conscious to talk about it a little bit okay yeah would you like to share it with everyone sure so self-consciousness comes from a place of negative energy guilt conflict and doubt Self-consciousness is more outward directed. It's being more concerned about what others are thinking of you and how the situation is going to affect you. You probably react to uncomfortable situations instead of respond. When you're self-conscious, you're questioning your decisions. Self-awareness comes from a place of positive energy, acceptance, contentment, and self-assuredness. Self-awareness is more inward facing. You have an accurate and realistic of understanding of how you are responding to situations and how you feel about things. There's a little bit more for each one of them, but you get the gist. Wow. Self-conscious is ego-driven. It's pleasing others. Self-awareness is humility-driven, and it's pleasing yourself as long as you understand that everything else is good around you. Oh, that was good. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. I got another question. So I noticed that you had numbers on the back of that card. Are all of them different numbers? Yeah. Yeah. They go in order. So give me a number between one and 33. Um, 22. 22. Card number 22 is uncover, reclaim. Okay. okay. So I took the word 
uncover and turned it into a seven step to uncover your greatness so you can enjoy life and live incredibly full every day. And R is the reclaim card. Wow. 22 is R, reclaim. Clarify your vision for the life you want. Create a long-term vision with a three to five year view of where am I going and how will I feel when I get there? There's a system used by some of the biggest companies in the world like Alphabet, which is Google's parent company and Intel called OKRs, objectives and key results. Here are the keys to using OKRs. Objectives is another word for goals. Key results, how am I going to achieve my objectives and when? And then there's the vital behaviors. What must I do right now to achieve my objectives? Wow, that's, that's, oh, I like those. Thank you. So if people want to purchase those cards, are they up for purchase or do you just work with people? Yeah, yeah, they are for purchase as okay. well as this just came out recently, a few months ago. Okay. I, I wrote my book. Wow. Warrior to Warrior, which, wow. which really, it tells some of the stories in my life. I'm very vulnerable in this book because I recognize for someone who's reading this book, if they're wanting to change, they need to see that it's possible. So you see my story, you'll see stories of my clients in here. And then I give you practical steps, which are also in the cards, but the cards are just like small things that you can carry around with you every once in a while and say, which one do I need today to help me get through the day? The book goes deeper and my course goes even deeper because you're working with me or you're watching my videos and if you want to go further. So I made it very simple. I have a website called connectwithmartin.com. That's simple. You go there, you can buy the cards, you can get a link to go to Amazon and buy the book and you can get some free gifts. Like how about a coloring book for adults or for children on the seven steps the seven secrets to an abundant warrior mindset. I like that. Thank you. And that's, that's free. Amazing. You can get that for free. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you. That is well, so great. I appreciate you coming on here today. Well, I appreciate Asia, you having me. And it's all about me understanding who I was and who I am and who I am continuing to be and who I, my journey is never ending. And it's about recognizing everybody out there, whoever you are, take a moment for yourself and say, what do I need to change today? Maybe the cards can help me, maybe the book can, maybe even spending 30 minutes on the phone with Martin on a Zoom call might send me. When you click on connectwithmartin.com, you could even do that. You could get a free 30 minute session with me. Okay. Thank you so much, I appreciate that. Thank you, everyone that tuned in. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. A um, couple ways to support. You can head over to www.greatergrowthllc.com and support the t-shirt and sweatshirt store. You can also um, head over to Amazon and purchase a copy of Back in My Day by Asia Wilson. Um, and then you can also check out the link tree that we have tagged in this video um, to check out and see what all we have to offer. Thank you so much and until next time.